Okay, our message this week uh, will be from the book of Jeremiah, be chapter 46 and 50, Israel and Judah redeemed. But before we get into this week's message, um, does anyone know what that is? I shouldn't say anyone, but <laughs> does it, anyone know what this is? Can you tell what that is? A bunch of numbers, all right, very good. That's, that's a good first hint. All right, getting a little warmer. What? Chapters, very good, getting warmer. What? Prime numbers? No, not prime numbers, but... Uh, weeks in a year. No, Dave had it here. Well, it's two weeks in a year. Brian had it, I mean. Brian, say it again. 52 chapters in Jeremiah. 52 chapters in Jeremiah, very good. All right, so that's, we're getting a little closer. So that's 52 chapters in Jeremiah. Now, some of them are in green and some of them are in white. Uh, 1, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 41, 42, 43, 45, 46, 50, 51, and 52 are in green, in case you're colorblind. <laughs> Maybe I should have done the white ones, that'd be easier, right? Uh, so why are some green and why are some white? Because you didn't have red, yeah, okay. Could have made it red and white, but why are some green, why are some white? Because you chose it that way. Well, why did I choose it that way? Because green and white. Well, yeah, what are the, why, why are some green, why are some white? I know, but I know you can't. <laughs> no. Some of you should know. No, you can't say. The green ones are the chapters that we studied here together. And the white ones are the ones that we haven't studied here yet together. Out of the book of Jeremiah. Plus Lamentations, right? We did about five or so sermons on Lamentations. Uh, and then 17, there's a little two next to it because the two, two sermons came out of chapter 15, 17. And there's a little four next to number 31. There were four sermons that came out of chapter 31. So there's a couple that we combined, a couple of chapters, but close to 50 sermons out of the book of Jeremiah. So if anyone wants to preach next week on, one, on 2, 3, 5, 10, 11, 44, 47, 48, or 49, feel free to let me. I can't. So far, God hasn't revealed to me a, a message out of any of those chapters yet, but, uh, but maybe he'll speak to you. And if you want to preach that uh, next week, that'd be fine. Otherwise, we'll go on to Ezekiel. Or if you're afraid to get up here, then just tell me what you think is there, and, and I'll be happy to preach it. But, uh, but yeah, those are the chapters we've done so far. So, and if you've missed any of those chapters, missed any of the sermons, you can go to shalomadventure.com, and you can type in Jeremiah, whatever chapter, and, uh, and listen to the, the message that way. Okay, so with that, let's get to chapter, possibly the last sermon on Jeremiah that we'll do, unless, again, I'm still looking at these other ones to see if there's anything that uh, will speak to our hearts for today. I'm sure there's a message there for something, for some reason God put it in there, and certainly they have their application, but something that we can gain for our lives today, uh, that'd be fine as well. Okay, so verse 46, chapter 46, starting verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations. And so Jeremiah was not just a prophet for Judah, uh, but also God gave him some messages for the nations. Verse 13, we jump ahead to 13. The word of the Lord to Jeremiah of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, coming and striking Egypt. 
Declare in Egypt, say, stand fast and prepare yourselves for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand because the Lord drove them away. So Jeremiah is prophesying here that Babylon's going to come and is going to attack Egypt. And Jeremiah mentioned that last week when, when uh, <clears throat> some of the people of Judah wanted to go to Egypt, and Jeremiah warned them not to go, and they went anyway, and he said, you're going to die there, and now he's saying again, and the reason we're going to die there is because Babylon's going to come and attack Egypt and sweep it away. Egypt is a very pretty heifer, but destruction comes, and it comes from the north. So again, Babylon coming down from the north and attacking Egypt, so very specific in its prophecy of which nation's going to attack which and which one's going to win. And in the book of Daniel, and this parallels a lot, in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 11, uh, the, the whole chapter revolves around the king of the north and the king of the south attacking each other. And the parallels here with this chapter are amazingly strong. So it's a literal event that took place here, and it also has prophetic significance for the events of chapter 11 in Daniel, especially the last day, events the last north-south attack mentioned in the book of uh, Daniel chapter 11. So against Egypt, so Babylon attacking Egypt, uh, north to south. And verse 26, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. And the verse 26, 25 verses before this basically are saying kind of the same thing about this attack and how it's going to take place. But it ends here with saying that afterwards, Egypt will be re-inhabited. So three very specific aspects to this prophecy, that Babylon's going to attack Egypt, that Babylon's going to win, and that afterwards, eventually, Egypt is going to be uh, restored and re-inhabited. And all of those things came to pass, exactly as the Bible said, which again is an amazing thing. The Bible's an amazing book uh, of, of prophecy, of God knowing ahead of time what's going to take place and able to identify it accurately, because not all countries were re-inhabited. You know, some countries got decimated and, and never re-inhabited by, by the same people. But he says that Egypt would be, and it, it had been. It was. And after that, it goes on and now shifts towards Jacob. But do not fear, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be at ease, no one shall make him afraid. So here's another prophecy. That's going, God's going to bring Israel back to the land as well, and he's going, to, he's going to protect us. No one will make us afraid. We will be at ease, and we shall return. And he's speaking specifically to Israel. Now Israel had been taken captive by Assyria, right? Israel was divided, had a civil war, had uh, divided to Israel, the ten tribes in the north, Judah in the south, Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites in the south. The northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria a few hundred years before this and had become known as the ten lost tribes of Israel, but they weren't lost. God knew where they were, and God is prophesying about them that they would come back. And we're going to see some more of that in these next several verses. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you, uh, for I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, 
for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. So God, again, prophesying here, calls him as Jacob his servant. And so Jacob, reminding him, Jacob, Israel, the same, right? So Jacob, his name changed to Israel. Sometimes God refers to him as Jacob, sometimes as Israel, both the individual person and then as a nation, sometimes as Jacob, sometimes as Israel. Jacob kind of having that connotation of being the deceiver, being in rebellion, Israel as the overcomer, the prevailer, the prince with God. And so he says, Jacob, but my servant, so when Jacob becomes a servant again, when Jacob submits, when Jacob surrenders and serves God, instead of being in rebellion and, and self-serving, then God is able to do what he promises here to do. He'll make a complete end of the other nations. So this is uh, obviously last day prophecies, because it hasn't made a complete end of all the nations yet, but the Bible prophesies the complete end to all the nations, and we have that parallel with many places in the Bible, but for example, Daniel chapter 2, where there's a statue, and it starts off with the head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then clay, and then a stone cut out with, by God's hand, and smashes the statue to pieces, and then God makes a new heavens and a new earth. And so all the nations destroyed, God creates a new heavens and new earth, and reestablishes with his people, Israel, all those who overcome, all those who prevail with God, all those who are princes with God, all those who become servants of God, surrendered to God from the very beginning to, to the end uh, that God establishes and will uh, not make a complete end of us and will protect us and, and will uh, be with us. Now it also says there, I will rightly correct you for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. And that's part of what brings about the restoration. That's part about what brings that we are protected and under God's care and that he doesn't leave us is because he, he brings us to repentance. He brings us to servanthood. He brings us to surrender to him. And he does that sometimes by allowing punishments and disasters to happen in our life. Sometimes he does it by blessings. It all depends on us. Right? So if the blessings, if we receive his blessings and we're thankful for them, and that causes us to appreciate what he has done in our lives, then that's all that's needed. But if we, uh, if we don't catch that signal, and sometimes he allows uh, punishments to come play, take place, or we go outside of God's protection, and Satan kicks us around for a while, and sometimes that leads us back to God. But, uh, but even in that, there's God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's grace. And he doesn't leave us unpunished. Now there is a gospel that goes around that, uh, that God's love is just so great that the Messiah died for our sins and so there is no punishment for us, there's no condemnation for us, and we all just, you know, get off easy. And while the scriptures does say there is no condemnation and that he did die for our sins, that doesn't mean we get off the hook with no punishment. There is a punishment, now it might not be eternal death, it won't be eternal death, so we're not punished in that way. We don't have to die physically for our sins. But there does need to be a spiritual death that takes place. There is a punishment that takes place. A repentance that has to happen. A confession of the sins. A loathing of the sins. A turning from the sins. The carnal nature has to die. The carnal nature has to be crucified. The carnal nature has to be eliminated, and that comes through God's conviction that comes upon our hearts and minds, drawing us, leading us, and again, sometimes using blessings, sometimes using uh, curses, sometimes whatever it takes to, to get our attention, 
It leads us to him, and then we confess our sins, and we accept the Messiah's death in our place. He takes the ultimate punishment for us, but with his death, self, our self, our nature, our evil desires have to die with him. Because all of us are born with evil desires. All of us are born with a carnal nature. All of us are born with, with a tendency towards evil, towards doing what is wrong, towards selfishness, towards pride, to caring first and foremost about ourselves. And so we'll be selfish, we'll have our own little, that's where prejudice comes from, we, 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 we out, everything outside of us, and so we'll have our own little cliques, our own little groups, whether we're united around a football team or united around a state flag or united around a political party uh, or, 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 or whatever type of segment we want to divide up into. We can even be just our family and we hate everybody else. But then even there, it still comes down, when it comes really down to it in heart, we're still out for just number one. And family comes second, unless God changes our hearts. It's a miracle of God that then puts others first. It's a miracle of God that loves others that are not like us. And I'm not talking about just tolerance, but love towards others, even those who hate us and despitefully use us. And that's what God came to demonstrate in his life. And we see even in the Messiah's life as he took on flesh, his flesh didn't want to die. His flesh resisted death. Prayed three times, agonizing, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. But your will be done, not mine. We don't want to die. We resist death. We resist dying physically, but also the spiritual death. And that's the hard part. Obedience is not hard. When we allow God to come in us and work through us. Obedience in our natural nature is impossible. To love others to not harbor anger or resentment or bitterness, to not be jealous and to not be selfish, that's impossible without God. But with God, it's easy. Because that's God's character. God is love. And God is unselfish. And God is merciful and forgiving and long-suffering. And we allow him to fill our hearts and minds then that's what's lived out in us. But first, before he can fill us up, he has to empty us out. And that's the hard part, because we don't want to be emptied out. We don't want self to die. And so the hard part is surrendering in that area of our life. Each area needs to be surrendered. And God doesn't convict us on all areas all at one time, or our heads would blow off. But one thing at a time, and as he reveals an area to us, and we struggle with I don't want to die to that. I don't want to give that up. I have a right to be angry in that area. I have a right to hate that person. I have a right to want this for myself. I enjoy this thing. It's my only one bad habit. And we'll come up with all kinds of excuses. But when we surrender that, which again takes the struggle, that's the struggle. And God will help us with that too. If we surrender that, God help me to surrender. We allow him to give us the surrender. And then it's easy. We surrender it, he takes it, he buries it, he died for it, and then he fills us with his spirit, and then he empowers us, so then that area doesn't become a struggle anymore. Unless we go back into it, but, but we can gain victory in that area and then never have a problem with that again. 
And I'm sure we've experienced that. In areas that he's given us victory over and had victory for five years, it's not even a thought anymore to go back to that. But then there's a new area that he reveals to us or shows us. And then we go through that whole process again. And he gives us victory to victory. So we don't go wholly unpunished, but it's by going through that process of dying to self. That's the punishment. The confession, the repentance, the conviction, the guilt, and being relieved of all of that and set free from that and having victory. It's those not being wholly unpunished that leads us to being his servants, his children that he restores and places in his eternal promised land. So that's chapter 46. Let's go to chapter 50, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by the prophet Jeremiah. So, so far he's been talking about Babylon being in a positive. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, his servant. Babylon's going to, to uh, correct and bring punishment to Judah for our sins and, uh, and wake us up. And he's going to use Babylon to, to attack Egypt and win the victory. But now here in this chapter he says, but Babylon's not going to be wholly unpunished either. Babylon's going to have its day of judgment as well. Verse 2, declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard, proclaim, do not conceal it, say Babylon is taken, Baal is shamed, Murdoch is broken in pieces, her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces. So because of the idol worship, God's going to deal a judgment against them. And certainly he did. Thank God we don't have those idols anymore. And that God bringing us to Babylon, those are some of the things that we worshipped in Israel prior to the Babylonian captivity. But we woke up in Babylon. And when we come back, we read it. We read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and, and some of the prophecies after we came back uh, and, and in the Gospels. We don't see this being a problem. We don't see Baal worship being a problem. We don't see um, uh, worship of Asterisk being a problem anymore. God set us free of those idols. Now other idols replace them, self-idols and, and tradition idols. And today we don't have those idols anymore. That part of Babylon's been destroyed. And Babylon nation was destroyed. Uh, we've got other idols. We now have the Walmart idols and the sports team idols and, and the music star idols and fashion idols and car idols and boat idols and house idols and our other idols that we have today. But those have been broken and destroyed. For out of the north a nation comes against her which shall make her land desolate and no one shall dwell therein. So now he's describing Babylon and that Babylon's going to get attacked from the north as well. Now it's Medo-Persia that historically attacks and destroys and, and, and Daniel prophesied would be Medo-Persia that would attack and overtake Babylon. But it's interesting because as we look at a map basically Persia is to the east, Medo-Persia basically to the east of Babylon, but also a little bit to the north. But in order to attack Babylon, it had to go to the north because of the deserts. And so it went to the north and then came down, as illustrated here in, uh, in the pictures here, um, in the map. So, so that's how Medo-Persia attacked Babylon, accurately like Daniel or Jeremiah predicted, that from the north they would be attacked and destroyed. And they were. And so the north is mentioned several times here. And the last destruction of the last king there in Daniel chapter 11, it says the tidings come from the north and east. He hears those and is destroyed. And that I don't think is, is physical north, but straight up north. And the east, the prophetic east 
on that. And that's a whole other topic that we'll get into sometime. So back to chapter Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 4. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel with Judah shall come with continual weeping and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces towards it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. So here again, similar to chapter 46, Israel, but now also Israel with Judah. So again, now it's talking about the two different ones. So he's not talking Israel in general, as Judah is part of Israel, but Israel specifically, the ten tribes that were taken by the Assyrians, and Judah, the tribes that were taken by Babylon. Because Assyria was taken over by Babylon, so when Babylon overtook Assyria, it took over all the Israelites that were in Assyria and captive there. And then they became part of Babylon. And then when Babylon took over Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and took uh, the Jews to Babylon, we were united again, Judah and Israel together. And so here he's prophesying that Judah and Israel, or Israel and Judah together shall come. And so we came back when the restoration came back, when Cyrus said we can go back, uh, the Persian king, years later after Babylon, said we can go back, and we went back. It was Israel and Judah together that went back. Never more in 10 different, 12 different tribes. We don't hear it described in the Bible as 12 different tribes at that point, but we came back together. And then after the uh, Medo-Persians and the Greeks came in and, and, and the Greeks and then we get the, the, the Hanukkah story, and then the Maccabees rise up. And, and again, it's not 12 different tribes, but it's one nation together. And we see that in the Gospels, not 12 different tribes, but it's just one nation altogether. Or referred to by that time as Jews, but it's the 10 tribes and the two tribes and the Levites all together. And we see that a little bit in some of the names. Right? What was Peter's, one of Peter's names in the Gospels? Simon Peter, Simeon, Simeon, Simon Peter, Simeon. So what tribe might he have been from? The tribe of Simeon, yeah. And so we have some of the names like that. We have it, so uh, some of the different people in the Gospels are mentioned with their, with their names, might indicate that they were from that tribe. And so we see that the tribes came and came back uh, all together. So they're the 10 lost tribes, because a lot of strange doctrines and theories have come out of these 10 lost tribes, because hey, if they're 10 lost, then hey, you can put them anywhere, right? And so there have been some theories that they, they end up being part of Europe and, uh, and the Danish or the Dans and all kinds of things like that. Some say that the American Indians, they somehow made it all the way over <laughs> across the Atlantic somehow, and, and the American Indians were the 12 tribes. I've heard people tell me that um, it was the African nations, various African nations of the 10 lost tribes and all different kinds of things to that. But, but they came back, they came back. The Bible tells us right clear in Jeremiah that Israel... The children of Israel with Judah shall come and come with continual weeping. And there again is not that wholly unpunished. Not, oh, God forgives, he just loves, he just forgives, forgives, forgives. No, there is also, again, this death to self that needs to take place, this change that needs to take place. Fortunately, this is, you know, teaching that goes around, popular teaching today that, uh, well, God just forgives us and we just stay the same. This is how I am. This is how I was born. You know, I'm born with this nature. I'm born to be a kleptomaniac. I'm born to be a paramaniac. So you guys all just have to put up with me. This is how I am. <laughs> you know, I'm born to be a mass killer, and that's just how I am. It's in my nature. I there was one guy, he kidnapped uh, three ladies and kept them for years in his house. And, and when they caught him, a couple of them escaped. And I think it was up like in Chicago somewhere. 
a couple years ago. One of his defenses was, well, it's just in my nature. And he was expecting sympathy for that. Well, it's your nature. Well, tough luck. <laughs> and it is our nature. We're born with a pervert nature, all of us. We're all born backwards. We're all born corrupt. Again, we're all born carnal. We're all born disgusting. It's not just, well, then everybody's just got to accept me and God's going to just accept me like this. God loves us as we are. But he loves us too much to leave us as we are. <laughs> he says, I love you and I take you, but I change you. I'll clean you up. And we have uh, prophecies in the Bible. It says, I found it as a discarded uh, child, naked, and, and I took you and I cleansed you and I washed you and I married you. And God takes us and he cleans us up and he changes us. He trans That's the power of the gospel. Not a gospel that God just accepts us, because then he shouldn't have kicked Adam and Eve out. So, all right, so I created a bunch of kleptomaniacs. They stole from tree, my tree, and I just have to put up with it. Oh, I created Lucifer, and he, you know, he's just a maniac, but I'll have to just put up with it. No, he said, no, I, I can change you, and if you don't want to be changed, you can leave. But I give you the power. I have the power. God says he has the power to change us. And that's the power of the gospel. So it's coming with continual weeping. That's the repentance, the confession, and seeking the Lord. And they'll ask the way to Zion with their faces towards Zion. We need to have our faces continually towards the heavenly Zion. Our faces towards heaven. Our faces towards God's face. Looking unto him. Seeking him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And being found in him. Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in perpetual covenant. Married to him. Surrendered to him, servants of his, signing the contract with him, committed to him in a perpetual covenant that he won't forget, that he seals. And it's his covenant, it's his power. Because right? it's God's power that gives us the ability to want him. It's he who brings us to conviction. It's he who brings us to him. It's he who draws us with his everlasting love. It's he who shows us our need. It's he who forgives us for the mistakes that we made. And it's he who gives, comes inside us and lives inside us through his Holy Spirit and empowers us to live right lives. So it's all him. So he wills and does according to his good pleasure if we will just surrender every aspect of our life in a perpetual covenant, a continual covenant, an everlasting covenant with him. It's his covenant that he promised towards us. Verse 17, Israel is like a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the Assyrians devoured him. Now Babylon has broken his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his lands as I have punished the king of Assyria. So here again, 10 northern tribes were taken by Assyria. Then Babylon came and took over that. And we became then part of Babylon. And then when Judah was brought in, Judah as well. Verse 19, I'll bring back Israel to his home. He shall feed on Carmel. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim. Verse 20, in those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. The sins of Judah, but they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. So there again, Israel and Judah, both brought back together as two separate entities becoming one, brought together as one, 
in Babylon and then brought back to Israel, the nation, the land, and becoming one, which we saw this happen. Right? So all these things have happened. Exactly as God said. Babylon was going to attack Egypt, it attacked Egypt. Babylon was going to win, it did win. Egypt was eventually going to be restored, and Egypt was eventually restored. Israel was going to come under Babylon, Judah was going to come under Babylon, Israel and Judah were going to come back to the land, and they did. All the things, and Babylon was going to be judged, and Babylon was judged. All of those things. There are lots of prophecies right here. All of them came to pass. And they all, history will repeat itself. Symbolically, Revelation talks about a Babylon. It's not talking about the literal Babylon. But what Babylon symbolized with its idols and false worship and mixture of religions. And we have today in many circles a mixing of religions coexisting together in theology together. The taking a little of this and a little of that and Eastern religions coming into Christianity and pagan religions coming in and mixing together. And in Judaism, there's a lot of mixing that's kind of on over the years as well. And it's this mixture of Babylon, confusion, mixing it with the Bible truths and entering in things that aren't in the Bible. This mixture together is this Babylon that will be destroyed. But God will pardon us and preserve us. And he says, the iniquity of Israel will be sought, but there shall be none in the sins of Judah. Because God has forgiven. He has wiped them out. He has taken our sins and dumped them into the bottom of the sea, down into the depths of the sea. Removed them as far from the east and from the west. They're gone. You can seek for them, but they are not found because the Messiah has taken them and killed them and destroyed it and wiped it out and blotted it out by his blood. We are forgiven. But more than just forgiven, victorious as well. That's why they can't be found. Not only the record of the sin, but the power that sin had over us. He gives us victory over sinning. Not only victory over the past sins, not only victory over the judgment of the sins, not only victory over the record of the sins, but victory over the power that sin once had over us. That we're victorious in the Lord. Transformed, changed into his likeness. And living for him. Verse 32. The most proud shall be stumble and fall, and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all around him. The Lord of hosts says the children of Israel were oppressed with the children of Judah. All who took them captive held them fast. They refused to let them go. Again, we're seeing Israel and Judah together in captivity together and brought back together. So again, the whole ten lost tribes theory just really is... Unbiblical. Verse 34. The Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against her princes and her wise men. So it mentions sword, it mentions judgment on Babylon. In verse 38, a drought is against her waters. They will be dried up, for it is a land of carved images. They are insane with their idols. The wild desert beasts shall dwell there with jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. So he's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, so another, uh, Babylon. So another prediction here, very specific, that Babylon's going to be destroyed and no one's ever going to inhabit it again. Now, that was a pretty bold statement in Jeremiah's day. Babylon, the city of Babylon, was very well fortified. 
Its walls were so wide, double-walled, was so wide they could ra uh, race two chariots on top of them, surrounding the entire city. And through the center of the city, they had the river Euphrates coming through. And so they had a water source in the desert. Uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon are known as the, one, the eight great wonders of the ancient world. And so when Medo-Persia came and they laid siege to it, they surrounded it, the Babylonians inside would throw their food at the, at, the, at the Persians. We don't care. You're out in the desert. We got water in here. We got fruits in here. We're fine. You can lay siege forever. They were not afraid. They had a party inside. Well, the Medo-Persians knew that a holiday was coming and knew that the celebration was taking place, going to take place. So they went upstream. And just as it says here, a drought is against her waters. They will be dried up. And even more specific in, in the book of Isaiah regarding that event. The Medo-Persians went upstream of the Euphrates River. They diverted the water, dug a canal, and diverted it into a marsh area. And the waters, of the, the waters of the river dried up. And the Medo-Persians were able to go in on dry ground and march into the city and conquer it overnight. And that's how we read it in the book of Daniel. I think it's what, chapter 5 or so. And they go in, and while they're inside partying, and the Medo-Persians are drying up the river and marching their army in, God is writing with his finger on the wall above the menorah that they took from Jerusalem. Above the menorah, he's writing some of the only words in the Bible written with the finger of God. That sentence and the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. God's commandments for us and his judgment against Babylon. You'll be judged, you'll be taken and held in the balances and found wanting. You'll be judged and Medo-Persia will take you over. No one could interpret it. They call Daniel. Daniel comes and reads it to them. The waters were dried up. And then after that, they took over the city. They destroyed the city and then there was still some remnants there. And, and so further Babylonian kings, uh, or Medo-Persian kings, um, built another city a little distance away and tried to move the people there, knocked down the wall some more, and again further to try and get the people away. And, and then eventually it was vacant and empty. And after the Medo-Persians, the Greeks came along, and Alexander, Alexander the Great, or known as the Great, I uh, wonder if he named himself that or how he got that title, Alexander, uh, decided he wanted to rebuild Babylon. But what does the Bible say? will not be inhabited no more forever, nor shall be dwelt in from generation to generation. But Alexander wanted to do it. He wanted to rebuild this great city again. But before he got to do it, he died. And further, kings annihilated it even more. Eventually the river changed course and doesn't run through it anymore. And it's not more. And this is what it looks like today. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall reside in it. Sodom Hussein came along and he was going to rebuild it. And he started building, you can see that in the back there, some of the stuff he started to build, but no one lives there. It's uninhabited. Jackals and ostriches and rats and bats. and Just as the Bible predicted, over 2,000, something like 300 years, 400, 500 years. What an accurate prophecy. A huge, strong city, well-fortified. Desert, nothing, empty. 
God's word is accurate. God's word is true. You can't stand against it. You can try. They've tried. Down to Sodom and Zayn tried. Alexander tried. Can't stand against God's word. God's word is truth. Yeah, I'll take us down if we try. Verse 41. A people shall come from the north. Again, from the north. A great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall show no mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set array against you, O daughter of Babylon. In Revelation chapter 19, it talks about the spiritual Babylon, the spiritual confusion of the world. And that a voice comes from horses coming and a loud shout from heaven that shakes them up and Babylon is destroyed because the Lord, the Lord of hosts, with his name and vesture on, a, on his side, dipped in blood, riding on a white horse, followed with all the army of heaven, coming on horses with swords, just as we've read here. A sword comes against Babylon in the verses before this. And then here, like horses coming, Coming from the north, again, not physical earthly north, but straight up north, God coming from heaven and destroys the Babylon once and for all. There's a parallel here with this chapter and Revelation 19 and Daniel chapter 11. And in verse 43, the king of Babylon has heard the report about them and his hands grow feeble, anguish has taken hold of him, pangs as the woman in childbirth. Now, in the literal destruction of Medo-Persia over Babylon, when the army came marching in under the dry riverbed and the, and the handwriting on the wall, what does the Bible say in the book of Daniel happened to the king? His hips is right. His hips came loose. His loins got loose. His knees were knocking together. His loins were loose. He pooped his pants. He was terrified at the message on the wall. And the message of Persia's coming and taking it over, just as it says here, the king of Babylon has heard the report about him. And in Daniel chapter 11, talking about the last day, one, it says, and they hear a, uh, a noise, or they hear a report from the north and from the east, and they will be no more. King of Babylon has heard a report about them, and his hands grow feeble, anguish has told, can hold of him, pangs as a woman in childbirth. So Egypt is destroyed, Babylon is destroyed, but Israel and Judah will remain forever. And that's what's happened historically. Ancient Egypt is no more, it's a different Egypt today. And in the last days, this earth will be destroyed. The Babylon of this world, the confusion of this world, the nations of this world will be destroyed. And we that allow God to destroy our carnal nature Allow him to take it and bury it away and remove it from us. Allow him to make us new and to recreate in us clean hearts. Make us born anew, recreated into his image. Becoming reconcilers. Transformed by him. Changed by him. Becoming his servants. My servant, O Jacob. Transformed, changed, renewed. <coughs> under his likeness. Under his care under his wings. We'll have a perpetual covenant with him as we come with weeping before him, embracing him, seeking him with our eyes towards the heavenly Zion, our eyes towards the new Jerusalem.
our eyes lifted up to heaven, keeping our eyes on the goal set before us. He will keep us safe, he'll protect us, and he'll bring us into his barns, he'll bring us into the new Jerusalem, he'll bring us into the new heavens and new earth, where we will dwell forever and forgiven forever. And our sins can be sought out, but they've been blotted out, removed forever. So as we pray tonight, God's been speaking to your heart and mind. Maybe there's been some doubt in your mind. Maybe you haven't been trusting some area of God's word. Maybe there's some area you're struggling with of belief. And you've been reconfirmed tonight that God's word is true. And if he was right about Babylon, he was right about Egypt, he was right about Israel, he was right about Judah, then he knows what's best for me as well today. And he cares about me today as well. And those promises that are in there, that he'll take care of all my needs according to his riches and glory or whatever promise you're needing to claim right now, is true for you as well. That he'll bless you, that he'll pour blessings upon you, shaken down, pressed down, overflowing. As we walk in his ways, if you want to recommit your life in a perpetual covenant with him, hold fast to his word. If that applies to you tonight, in a moment when we pray, you can do that. Secondly, if there's an area of Babylon confusion in your mind in life, there's an area where you're still following some idol, there's some, still some sin in your life, maybe just one area, one thing, one thing now, you haven't gained victory over that you're in rebellion with, you're in resistance against, you're holding out on God, something that's there more important to you than God, it could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a job, could be a thing, could be yourself, something that's more important to you than God, that you don't want to let go of. You're struggling with it. We're united in prayer, and while I'm praying, you can ask God to give you victory, give you the power to surrender that area, and allow him to come in and fill you with his spirit and his truth and his righteousness. And as we prepare for these last days, We want to unite together, Israel, Judah, all those coming together, all those who surrender to him, Joseph's and the Rahab's, all coming together under his banner. The Naomi's and the Ruth's coming together under his banner, uniting together, coming before him, coming to him, seeking him, with our faces towards Zion. We're going to walk together unitedly with him by his grace and by his power when we pray. Ask him to make you his servant. Claim your position with him. If any of those areas or some other area that God's working in your heart and life about, let him do his great work. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name. For you know all things, you see all things, you're over all things, you're over this whole entire world, you're over the entire universe, and nothing surprises you, nothing phases you. And as we plot through here our time on this earth, we ask for your continual guidance and direction. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken our punishment and taken our sins, and thank you that you haven't allowed us to go wholly unpunished, but you've brought us to conviction, and you've brought us to you. You allow us to die in you and for self to die. Thank you for providing the way and the manner and the means. And thank you for providing a way for us to have new life. And so we surrender all. Help us, Lord. Crucify us. And renew our lives. 
resurrect us to newness of life here and now as well. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.